A ruling so urgent it had to come on a holiday. The lead starts right now. A judge siding with former President Trump, allowing a special master to sift through documents seized by the FBI at Mar-a-Lago and forcing a major delay in the Justice Department's case. Plus, battleground blitz. President Biden is on the road. His midterm message to voters in key swing states 64 days out from Election Day. And a billionaire's granddaughter abducted on a jog. Police say they know who is responsible. They just don't know where she is. Welcome to this special edition of The Lead. I'm Caitlin Collins, in for Jake Tapper. We start today with our politics lead and a major legal victory for Donald Trump for now. A federal judge who was appointed by Trump has now granted his request for a special master, allowing a third-party attorney to come in and review the documents seized from Mar-a-Lago last month. Judge Eileen Cannon cited several reasons for her decision, including the potential stigma that Donald Trump faces after the search, plus what she calls, quote, swirling allegations of bias and media leaks. Trump's lawyers argued that he needed a special master because they couldn't trust the Justice Department. And in today's ruling, the judge said that federal investigators cannot continue reviewing the materials that they took until the special master has finished their work. Let's get straight to CNN's senior justice correspondent, Evan Perez. Evan, I know this filing is 24 pages long. It came out on this holiday, but what are the main takeaways from it? Well, Caitlin, the, the judge says that the reason for this, uh, for this uh, action that she's taking uh, is to, the need to ensure at least the appearance of fairness and integrity under the extraordinary circumstances presented. That's from her ruling today. What this means, though, is that the Justice Department has to pause its investigation or at least its examination of these documents. Uh, the judge said that by Friday, what she wants is for the Justice Department and for the Trump lawyers to agree uh, on a name of a person who she can appoint as a special master, uh, as well as the parameters and, and the duties of this person, of what this person is going to be uh, looking at. She also wants a timeline for uh, for these two sides to agree to. Uh, if they can't agree, she says that she's going to obviously uh, decide, decide it for herself. What this does, though, is that it does allow for the intelligence community to continue their examination of the risk assessment. I'll read you just another part of this uh, of this ruling from the judge. She says, as a function of plaintiff's former position as president of the United States, the stigma associated with the subject seizure is in a league of its own. A future indictment based to any degree on property that ought to be returned would result in reputational harm of a decidedly different order of magnitude. The judge, uh, Caitlin, basically kind of putting the former president in a special category of citizens. Uh, you know, most of us don't have the right to, to appeal at this, at this stage in any investigation. But she's saying because he is the former president, she, he does have that right. And Evan, one other thing that stood out to me in this was the judge said that the FBI took Trump's medical documents, some tax information in this search. What do we know about what was taken and why the judge felt the need to talk about that in her ruling today? Yeah, she, she really uh, said that this influenced uh, her decision making. Certainly, uh, she had a report from the Justice Department. Remember, there was a special team of lawyers who were going through every document and, and separating it out from the investigative team. 
she said after reading their report, she found two instances in which documents uh, were transferred from this this group that was supposed to be, per, you know, perhaps have attorney-client uh, privilege material and sending it over to the investigative team. And she also said that there was uh, accounting information, tax information, uh, as well as medical records that were seized by the FBI. These are the things that she cited as part of the reason why she felt the need to bring in a third person to oversee this. And Evan, how is the Justice Department responding to all of this? Have they said whether or not they want to appeal the judge's ruling? Yeah, one of the things they raised in court, Caitlin, last week was the idea that they wanted the judge to rule in a certain way, to structure her ruling in a way that allowed them for appeal. Right now, they're not saying uh, that directly, but they say they're studying the ruling and they'll make a decision uh, in the coming days as to whether or not to appeal. Evan Press, thanks for that update. And joining me now to discuss is former Assistant U.S. Attorney Ellie Honig and former Principal Deputy Assistant Attorney General Tom Dupree. Ellie, I want to start with you. What, from your perspective in this ruling, did it seem was the judge's bottom line for granting this request from Trump's legal team? Well, Caitlin, really the judge's bottom line seemed to come down to a question of why not? Why would we not want to be as careful as possible here to bring in a third party independent outsider to make sure that all rights and privileges are protected here? This is a win for Donald Trump, no question about it, for now at least. But it's also important that people understand this is not ultimately likely to prevent DOJ from bringing a charge or not bringing a charge. The bottom line result, yes, DOJ will have to go through this process. It will be a burden. It certainly will take time. But ultimately, the only documents that are going to be kept out of DOJ's case are documents that are privileged, and they shouldn't be using privileged documents. They shouldn't want to use privileged documents. So Donald Trump has won this battle, but the war remains very much unresolved. It does remain unresolved. As people have noted, it may delay the case. It's not going to derail this investigation. Tom, I wonder, given you've worked at the Justice Department, how do you think that they will respond to this? Do you think they'll appeal it? Could they appeal part of it, but not the entire ruling that they heard from the judge today? The Justice Department can appeal this ruling, and my prediction is that they will appeal this ruling. Look, the court that they would appeal to is the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals. It sits in Atlanta. It's a conservative court, so they're not going to have judges who may be ideologically sympathetic to some of these arguments. But if you're in DOJ's shoes, I think today's ruling is a serious roadblock. It's going to slow down their investigation. And if you're in DOJ's seat, why not take your shot on appeal and see if you can get this thing reversed? Yeah, and they haven't said yet how they'll respond. They said they're weighing their options. Of course, they likely saw this coming because the judge had signaled her intent. Ellie, when it comes to executive privilege, the Justice Department's view is that Trump doesn't have executive privilege. He's no longer the executive. He is no longer president. But in the ruling, the judge seemed to say, you know, not that Trump definitely does, but kind of instead left this role of executive privilege as an open question here. What did you make of that? Yeah, DOJ overstepped a bit in their brief. They tried to argue in sort of conclusory fashion, Donald Trump's a former president, hence he has no ability to invoke executive privilege. But the judge, I think, correctly pointed to a Richard Nixon case, not the tapes case, but one that came a few years later in 1977, where the court essentially says it is difficult for a former president to invoke the privilege, particularly where the current president disagrees, but it's still possible. And in fact, the current Supreme Court this year, in a case involving January 6th committee and the archives, essentially said the same thing. They said it's a serious uphill climb for a former president, but it's not impossible. And for that reason, again, let's be careful. Why not cover all our bases and bring in this independent third party? 
And Tom, what do you make of the executive privilege argument that you saw and what the judge said today? What did you read into it? Well, I was going to say executive privilege is one of those things that lawyers love to talk about. Everyone likes to debate it, but there actually isn't a lot of case law giving concrete guidance out there as to when it applies and when it doesn't apply. I think in this case, the president's legal team is going to have two challenges. One is they're going to have to persuade the judge ultimately that executive privilege can be invoked by a former president against the current president. That's a challenge. Number two, even if it does apply, I think the president's going to have an uphill battle in claiming that a lot of these seized documents are actually covered by executive privilege. So once they actually get to that, and, you know, that was kind of the surprise here is that it wasn't just what's an attorney-client privilege, which isn't that surprising, but also this argument, which she said is a question for another day. Ellie, I do want to ask you about something that you saw in The New York Times over the weekend. You've written a a book on Attorney General Bill Barr. He was asked by The New York Times what he thought about Trump's request for a special master, which was granted to him today by this judge. And Barr's response to The New York Times was, quote, I think it's a crock. There you go. I don't think a special master is called for. He has been very outspoken in his criticism of Trump, more so in a way than I think most people initially expected when it comes to this investigation. Yeah, Caitlin, I've been surprised it's suddenly a turnabout by Bill Barr, who, of course, spent his two years as AG backing Trump, essentially no matter no matter what, I think, distorting facts, distorting the law and doing really whatever he could to support Trump. Now we see him coming out and saying this search of Mar-a-Lago was absolutely justified. DOJ had no other choice. I think he's right on that. I think he was wrong on the special master. I think the judge today certainly disagreed with him. It's not nothing. It's not a crock of blank. It is an important way to preserve and protect rights and privileges. So I agree to some extent with Bill Barr, which I guess is a little bit of a departure from the norm. (laughs) Many departures from the norm happening here. Tom, also in this today, the judge's reasoning included something this really stood out to me. She said, quote, the interest in ensuring the integrity of an orderly process amidst swirling allegations of bias in media leaks. This was something that I know is the Trump team was making their argument last Thursday that she brought up to the Justice Department, asking them, Jay Brad, who is the top official on this, about this idea of what's leaking from this and if the Justice Department is somehow responsible. He said he didn't know of anyone leaking, but obviously this information is getting out there. Were you surprised that she included that in her ruling? That line jumped out at me, too. It's not something you normally would see in a judicial order. I think what it underscores is that this case is extraordinary in so many respects. And that's really the theme that resonated throughout today's opinion, is the judge saying in so many ways, so many forms, this is a unique, unusual, extraordinary case. And this point about bias and media leaks and all that sort of thing, I think her point is to say this case has gotten unprecedented attention. It's captured the focus of the nation. And I, as a judge, want to ensure that as it moves forward, it does so in an orderly way, in a way with integrity, and in a way that American public who's watching all this can have full faith and confidence that there's a neutral arbiter out there making these decisions. Well, sounds like they're going to get one. They have a deadline of Friday. Tom, thank you so much. Ellie, thank you as well for joining on this holiday. Up next, the current president, Joe Biden, is on a battleground blitz today and defining what he be- means by the term that he's been using lately, MAGA Republicans. Plus, they promised to change buildings named after Confederates, but that was more than two years ago. CNN is asking why so many of those names are still etched in stone. Also in our politics lead, it's the end of the summer and the start of the midterm blitz. We are just 64 days away from the crucial November midterm elections. 
And President Biden is visiting two key battleground states, states today. First in Wisconsin this afternoon, where the president once again tried to clarify what he meant by defining some Trump supporters, some Republicans, as MAGA Republicans. The extreme MAGA Republicans in Congress have chosen to go backwards, full of anger, violence, hate, and division. But together, we can and we must choose a different path. Next hour, President Biden is going to be speaking in Pennsylvania as well. His third visit to the Commonwealth in just a week. CNN's Jeff Zeleny is there near Pittsburgh. Jeff, what is President Biden's message going to be tonight? Well, Kaylin, President Biden has just landed here outside of Pittsburgh. He'll be making his way here where hot dogs are on the grill, hamburgers are on the grill. Uh, labor union members are here to uh, rally support and hear from the president. And we know from his speech earlier today in Wisconsin that President Biden is trying to tout his economic record. He's trying to tout his accomplishments over the second part of the summer that they believe give them some momentum going into the uh, fall campaigns now just two months from tomorrow. But he also, as you said, is drawing a distinction with Republicans that may be the biggest takeaway message here. Again, trying to make the case that, uh, in his view, not all Republicans are MAGA Republicans. So clearly trying to peel away some of those uh, establishment Republicans, if you will, some of those independent voters who may not be thrilled with everything in the Biden administration, but certainly do not like the fact that the former president is front and center back in the campaign. Of course, he was here on Saturday. Donald Trump was rallying support Saturday in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. And President Biden, as you said, back for his third visit in a week here in the Commonwealth. Yeah, and we'll talk more about that Trump that visit made, the visit that Trump made on Saturday. But Jeff, today when President Biden is there, his third trip in a week, is he going to see Democratic Senate candidate John Fetterman while he's there? Well, that is our expectation that John Fetterman, of course, the lieutenant governor of Pennsylvania, will be here at the rally and will be on hand. Of course, uh, this is one of the most closely watched Senate races in the country. It's an open seat where Democrats believe they can win a Republican seat that uh, is held by retiring Senator Pat Toomey. And Pat Toomey is going to be appearing with Mehmet Oz, of course, the Republican nominee, tomorrow in Philadelphia. But today, John Fetterman is scheduled to be with uh, President Biden. Of course, the reason that's significant is he is still recovering from a stroke that he had earlier this year. So he's only been sporadically campaigning. He's been picking up his campaigning. But that has been an issue front and center in this campaign. But we are told by aides to John Fetterman, they tell me that he will be here with the president. So certainly that is something that Democrats are eager to see. Because, again, this seat in Pennsylvania, why the president is here, is going to be certainly one of the most important Senate races in all of the country, Caitlin. Yeah, and the White House is feeling hopeful about it. Jeff Zeleny, thank you. Let's discuss all of this now with my panel, who is so gracious to join me on this holiday. Maria, I want to start with you because President Biden is on his third trip to Pennsylvania. There is no hiding the strategy <laughs> there, of course. But as he's been on the road, he's been making this, this distinction, kind of intensifying these attacks, not only on Trump, not surprisingly, but also on the loyalists to Trump that are still in the Republican Party, whether they be voters or lawmakers. Do you see that as a viable strategy that he's taking on for the midterm elections? Absolutely. I think it's super smart for a couple of reasons. Namely, I believe a lot of the Republicans who were done with Trump were hoping to be done with Trump once he was out of the White House. And what they've seen is completely the opposite, that Trump has actually injected much more energy into the extremist MAGA agenda following Republicans. And number two, more than 80 Republicans who do follow Trump's big election lie who can be described as those extremist MAGA agenda following Republicans, won their Republican primaries, Caitlin. And many of them are running in positions that if they win in November, 
they will be able to control elections. And many of them have said, scarily enough, that they would not have certified Joe Biden's election. And these are people who will be in a position to change those election results if they don't believe that the way that it turned out is fair or was something that benefits them. And so that is, is an extremely huge and scary threat to our democracy. And we've seen that American voters across the board also realize that. There's been more than one or two polls out there that are showing that threats to democ- democracy has become a big priority issue for voters in the midterm election. So I think it's really smart of him to do that. Yeah, and that's part of the reason why they say the White House has said Biden is out there with this message. Exactly. But I wonder, Kristen, about this distinction he's drawing when it comes to the Republicans. And he's really going out of his way to say it. You know, he's like, I'm not talking about all Republicans. I'm talking about those who are loyal to Trump. But is that a nuance that Republicans pick up on, that they're accepting that other Republican lawmakers are not trying to kind of take advantage of? Well, whenever I ask Republican voters, do you think of yourself more as a Republican first or as a Trump supporter first? The party tends to be pretty split on that question, and it sort of ping-pongs around depending on how much Donald Trump is or isn't in the news that month. But for the last, you know, almost two years, that number has gone a bit back and forth. The problem that I think Democrats are running into with the strategy of trying to go after these quote-unquote mainstream Republicans by attacking the other half of the party is we're not seeing even those party first, not Trump first, but party first Republicans say, you know what, gosh, I'm going to vote for a Democrat this time. What this is really about is telling Democratic voters, hey, I'm not just going to sit back. I'm here to fire up the party. So I think you're much less likely to see these speeches of the last week do anything to peel off Republican voters from their own party. It's more about trying to speak to his own base, in my opinion. And independence. And independence as well, something that he has made clear in Mm -hmm. his call-outs to them. Jeremy, though, he's also not just talking about Republicans. He's talking about what they've done because they do have these, you know, the wind at their backs, in a sense, at the White House and for Democrats as they've talked about what they've gotten done on Capitol Hill. President Biden himself was pretty fired up today talking about prescription drug prices. We beat Pharma this year. We beat Pharma this year. And it mattered. We're going to change people's lives. We finally beat pharma. Jeremy, we both cover the White House. That's probably one of the most fired up instances that you've seen of Biden. Yeah, the last time I saw him this fired up was in Cleveland, and it was also in front of a union crowd. So I think that there might be something uh, to the fact that when the president addresses these union voters, he really feels that energy. What was interesting to me today is that not only was the president delivering this message, touting these victories and also talking about these MAGA Republicans, But he actually started to meld the two messages together. And that is that he starts by talking about MAGA Republicans and threats to democracy. But then soon enough, the lines get blurred. And suddenly he's talking about MAGA Republicans wanting to gut Social Security. He's talking about MAGA Republicans uh, opposing uh, every single Republican in Congress opposing the Inflation Reduction Act. So he is blurring those lines increasingly. And I think it's also very clear from listening to the president's speech today that just about every speech that the president delivers, especially in these key battleground states between now and November, he is going to continue to use these, this MAGA Republican line. Today is Labor Day. You thought maybe he would just focus on economics, just focus on his policy wins. No, he also yeah. brought this message as well. Yeah, what do you make of that, Nick? Well, I think it, it, it's something that Democrats see as a way to not only, uh, uh, you know, um, gin up base support heading into the midterms, but also try to reach out more to independent voters. I mean, we saw, uh, you know, President Biden's gains in approval rating lately uh, came from a lot of independents who had gone away prior. Mm-hmm. That said, a lot of those voters were people that, uh, at least in some polls, were showing that they would vote 
that they disapproved of President Biden but still wanted a Democrat in Congress. So this is where, why we see President Biden linking a lot of it together, both with this crystallized campaign message about Republicans and also showing voters what Democrats had delivered for them. Yeah, and Jeff Zeleny was talking about how important Pennsylvania is. Obviously, it's no surprise that we've seen President Biden there three times in just the last week alone. When it comes to the governor's race there, it's getting very interesting. It's been interesting, but it's getting very interesting with Josh Shapiro, who Shapiro is running. He's the Democratic nominee for governor. He's running against Doug Mastriano. He's really using abortion in Mastriano's stance there. And he actually dropped almost $17 million on the first ad of this fall campaign season, focused on abortion rights and the impact he says it has on Pennsylvania's economy, saying, you know, it's very clear that Democrats feel this is the momentum from this and that they are running on this and that that is a, an effective way to run against a Doug Mastriano. I think that's exactly right, Caitlin. Not only because Doug Mastriano represents this sort of extreme view that Democrats can use to paint most of the Republican Party with in terms of wanting to take away a woman's right to choose to have her be a second-class citizen in her own country, which is how women feel, But I'm sure he's also seen how successful that tactic has been recently for Democrats, right? New York 19, that's exactly what the gist of the whole campaign was. In Kansas, the referendum was tremendously successful, not just among Democrats. So I think this message about how Doug Mastriano represents the most extreme views and how he wants to impose that on all Pennsylvanians if he were to be elected, I think is extremely useful. And it also, I think, melds all of these messages together, right? Somebody who feels like Doug Mastriano does about abortion can be painted as a MAGA Republican. He can also be painted as somebody who wants to take us backward, who wants to take away the gains that uh, President Biden, along with Democrats, have given not just the American people, but specifically people in Pennsylvania. And that's, and that's how the White House feels about this, too. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they view this abortion ruling and the extreme stances yeah. by some Republicans with no exceptions for life of the mother, et cetera, as tying all of this together in exactly. terms of portraying the opposition, the Republicans, as extremists yeah. in many sense of the word. And the problem Republicans, work? Fa- well, the problem Republicans face on this is that while, yes, saying you want to completely ban abortions is considered an extreme position by most voters, it's also considered extreme to say you don't support any restrictions. And yet, for instance, you know, the RNC today was circulating a clip of John Fetterman in Pennsylvania saying mm-hmm. he wouldn't support any restrictions on abortion. That's not a mainstream position, but... Abortion is not an issue that's firing up Republican voters. So while you are likely to see Democrats pouring money into pointing out what they would say is Republican extremism, you are less likely to see Republicans sort of using what they would say is Democratic extremism in the same way. Well, and I wonder how do Republicans feel with Trump back at the forefront? Mm-hmm. He's the one campaigning for them. Obviously, he's very popular. This was his message in Pennsylvania over the weekend when it came to his first rally since the FBI searched his home. The FBI and the Justice Department have become vicious monsters controlled by radical left scoundrels, lawyers, and the media who tell them what to do. He's an enemy of the state. You want to know the truth? The enemy of the state is him and the group that control him. Is that the message that Republicans want Trump using on the midterm trail? Uh, As my colleagues and I have reported, there's a lot of frustration among Republicans that this is the kind of controversy that they're being forced to answer questions about and deal with right now, as opposed to talking about the economy, something that Republicans had seen as a much stronger suit. So, I mean, you know, Republicans would much rather uh, talk about gas prices and the like, but instead, Democrats and and President Biden are able to then focus attention back on Trump with this Mm -hmm. back in the news. 
All right, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you to all of you for being here Thanks, on this holiday. Kim. Happy Labor Day. <laughs> Happy Labor Day. Up next, the woman set to take over one of the most powerful positions in the world. Her promises, her plans after months of scandal and an administration in crisis. Topping our world lead, outgoing British Prime Minister Boris Johnson is congratulating his successor today. Conservative Liz Truss will replace him as the next British Prime Minister, the country's third woman to hold the position. And as Bianco Nobolo now reports, Truss will be in charge of governing a country facing its most serious economic crisis in a generation. But she promises that she's up to the task. Britain's new prime minister is an ambitious political chameleon. We will deliver... We will deliver, we will deliver. And we, and we. During her acceptance speech, Liz Truss promised to cut taxes, grow the economy, and deliver a plan to tackle soaring energy costs. One of two candidates selected by Tory lawmakers after Boris Johnson was pushed to resign following one too many scandals. I want to apologise. Truss was ultimately chosen by less than 1% of the British electorate. A slither of the Conservative base, older, whiter and more right-wing than the average voter. Enough already. She promised a hard line on immigration and tax cuts to a party drifting further to the right, channeling their hero, Margaret Thatcher, even dressing like her. Outgoing Prime Minister Boris Johnson tweeted his support, calling her victory decisive. But with just 57% of the votes, Truss's first challenge will be to unite her party, let alone the country. Like half of Britain's prime ministers, she studied here at Oxford University. But back then, she was a liberal Democrat activist in favour of legalising cannabis and abolishing the monarchy. Abolish them! We've had enough! Now she's the darling of the right wing of Britain's Conservatives, the pro-monarchy party of law and order, quite the 180. I think she fought a good campaign and I'm not surprised that she's been voted in. Does it make me feel warm and cuddly and soft all over? Not really, because nothing will change. She says she's going to help energy cars, living cars, and that's what we really need. Truss inherits a nightmare, war in Europe, a biting cost-of-living crisis, the country braced for a winter of potential blackouts and fuel poverty. Britain is desperately hoping she'll leverage her ambition and adaptability to rise to the challenge. Caitlin, it is profoundly atypical for a prime minister to enter office at this level of unpopularity within the country at large. And that's solely because she was only ushered into this post by 0.2% of the electorate, just the Conservative Party base. So without a clear mandate, with the scale of the economic challenge facing the UK and with a party that's now in a tired state of disrepair, it would take a politician of towering gifts and stature to make a success of this. And no one I've yet spoken to, Caitlin, is entirely convinced that she's got what it takes. Yeah, no clear mandate in an economic storm facing her. Bianca Navalo, thank you so much outside British Parliament. Up next, a teacher, mother and granddaughter of a billionaire. Missing for days now, we have surveillance video and a pair of sandals that gave investigators new leads in this case.
are worldly. The Canadian Prime Minister just spoke moments ago about a string of stabbings that have killed at least 10 people and left 18 wounded. Police are warning the public to be on alert for these two suspects who are still at large, having left 13 separate crime scenes in their wake. CNN's Paula Newton joins us live from Ottawa. Paula, what are we learning about the investigation so far and how it's proceeding? Paula, we are going to get back to her just in a few moments from now to get an update on what is happening there on the ground in Ottawa. Right now, we're going to go to another disturbing case in Tennessee where a judge has set bond at half a million dollars for a man who was arrested and charged in connection with the abduction of the Memphis mother, teacher, and billionaire's granddaughter, Liza Fletcher. She was attacked while jogging very early Friday morning. She's still missing. As CNN's Gary Tuckman reports, police say a pair of sandals helped police identify the suspect. We want to find her. A major break, but still no sign of Eliza Fletcher. Police have arrested a 38-year-old man named Cleotha Abstin in connection with the Tennessee teacher's disappearance. He's now charged with kidnapping and tampering with evidence. It's unclear if he has an attorney. The arrest comes after U.S. Marshals tracked down what a criminal complaint affidavit says is the SUV seen in this surveillance video. It shows 34-year-old Eliza Fletcher early Friday morning, before dawn, jogging next to the University of Memphis campus, when the driver of this black SUV forced her into the passenger side of the vehicle. The affidavit against Abstin, obtained by CNN, reveals the SUV remained in a parking lot for about four minutes. It said there appeared to be a struggle between the two before the suspect drove away. U.S. Marshals found the GMC terrain near Abstin's home. The vehicle had the same damage in partial license plates seen in the surveillance footage, according to the affidavit. Investigators contacted Apton's employer to help confirm the vehicle believed to be involved in Eliza Fletcher's kidnapping belongs to a woman associated with his address. In addition, the affidavit reveals DNA recovered from a pair of sandals found at the crime scene helped investigators identify Abston. It said surveillance video from a local theater showed Abstin wearing the same sandals the day before Eliza's disappearance. According to the affidavit, Abstin has declined to share Eliza Fletcher's whereabouts. Our concern is to locate Ms. Fletcher, so if anybody knows where she's at, call the police immediately. Eliza Fletcher, who goes by Liza, is a wife, a mother of two, and a junior kindergarten teacher at the St. Mary's Episcopal School in Memphis. She uh, uh, teaches, and then she has two young boys that obviously um, we're worried about and just great lady really just the best mom. Eliza Fletcher is an heiress whose late billionaire grandfather ran Orgill Incorporated. The Memphis-based company is the nation's largest independent distributor in its field of hardware and home improvement according to Forbes. CNN affiliate WMC posted a video statement from Eliza's family members saying they have met with police and shared all the information they have. The family is offering a $50,000 reward for Crime Stoppers for information leading to her safe return. More than anything, we want to see Liza returned home safely. The family has offered a reward for any information that leads to her safe return. We believe someone knows what happened and can help. And Caitlin, we have this disturbing detail from about 22 years ago. The suspect today, back in 2000, he was found guilty of kidnapping a man, a lawyer here in Memphis, who got away. But he served jail time, 20 years in prison. He was released in November 2020, a little less than two years ago. He will go to court tomorrow for an arraignment.
One more thing we want to add, three new lesser charges have been added today. They include identity theft and fraud use of a credit card or debit card of under $1,000. We don't know exactly what that means, but we can figure that it must mean that he's alleged to have stolen one of her credit or debit cards and used it. Caitlin? So disturbing. Also, the, the news about that previous arrest. Gary Tuckman reporting live from Memphis. Thank you for that update. I want to go back to Canada now, where that manhunt is also still underway after the series of deadly stabbings. CNN's Paula Newton is joining us live. Paula, what are we learning about this investigation so far? You know, the problem here, Caitlin, is that the trail has essentially gone cold and it's been you know, well over a day now since they've had any sightings of those two suspects that you mentioned, both Damien Sanderson and Miles Sanderson. They are, of course, dangerous. What is interesting about this attack and has been so devastating, unnerving for people in that community who are afraid the suspects will still come back is the fact that the attacks were both targeted, police say, and random. At this hour, there are still 18 people who were injured, 10 dead. And really, everyone wondering why there have been no sightings of these suspects. Are they hiding out or are they laying in wait? And the issue here is the nature of these crimes. So vicious. These were stabbings. Firearms were not used. And they were absolutely brutal, according to the witnesses that gave their statements to police. I want you to listen now, though, to Justin Trudeau, the prime minister, talking about this just moments ago. Listen. Sadly, over these past years... Tragedies like these have become all too commonplace. Saskatchewanians and Canadians uh, will do what we always do in times of difficulty and anguish. We'll be there for each other, be there for our neighbours, lean on each other, help grieve and help heal. Now... Caitlin, while, you know, those words may come as some comfort, so many people in the community is saying that they remain terrified. Police also saying that people should shelter in place, remain indoors. If they do see the suspects, they are not to approach them. They're actually to leave the scene and call police. At this hour, as I said, the manhunt continuing and spanning several thousands of miles. Caitlin? Yeah, you can't blame people from being unsettled because of that. Paula Newton reporting from Ottawa. Thank you. Up next, the red tape that is slowing down the process of removing Confederate names from buildings and schools. A 1960s plaque emblazoned with the words Ku Klux Klan. No, it's not a hidden historical relic of a racist organization. Actually, that plaque is still hanging outside the science building at West Point. Now, the Congressional Naming Commission wants the Pentagon to include KKK memorabilia in its efforts to identify and rename Confederate markers at military institutions. CNN's Nadia Romero reports on the obstacles blocking change at this site and others. A new school year brings new hope in the years-long fight to change a trio of names that loom over this building and two others in Montgomery, Alabama. Robert E. Lee, Jefferson Davis, and Sidney Lanier High Schools. Melvin Brown grew up in Robert E. Lee's hometown. Today, he is the superintendent of schools. Just weeks into his tenure, Brown is determined to see the names go. We need to be honest about it. So what do you say to those who believe you're trying to erase history and erase our heritage? The gentleman by, by, for whom this building is constructed and named um, was a brilliant military tactician. At the same time, he was a slaver. 
At the same time, he led a rebellion against his own country. The Montgomery-based Equal Justice Initiative, a nonprofit with the mission of challenging racial and economic injustice, says Lehigh was named in 1954 as retaliation to Brown versus Board of Education, ending separate but equal in U.S. schools. Jefferson Davis High, named in 1968, right after integration. As of 2021, EJI identifying more than 240 schools in 19 states named in honor of Confederate leaders. I can't agree. In response to George Floyd's murder, school districts across the South and beyond pledged to rename schools named after Confederate leaders. In Atlanta, Forest Hills Academy, named after Confederate general and one of the founders of the Ku Klux Klan, Nathan Bedford Forrest, is now Hank Aaron New Beginnings Academy. In Baton Rouge, Lee Magnet School, renamed Liberty Magnet School. But in Montgomery, Alabama, where three public high schools have at least an 80% black student population, Confederate-named schools still remain. What I see here but school board member Lisa Keith argued changing the names would be more divisive than helpful. My perception of this whole thing is it has divided us as a board and it has divided us as a city. Despite Keith's objection, the school board had enough votes to change the names of all three schools in July 2020. But more than two years later, not much has happened. We got a lot of work to do, though. Oh, yeah, most definitely. One of the major obstacles slowing them down is the Alabama Memorial Preservation Act, signed in 2017 by Governor Kay Ivey. Will says if they change the school names without getting state approval, they could face steep fines. There are funds that have been collected to pay those fines. And more money would be needed to change everything from signage to letterheads to uniforms, a price tag the school district hasn't determined. But as Superintendent Brown sees it, there's no price that is too steep for us to help kids in their well-being. And here in Jackson, Mississippi, this school used to be Robert E. Lee Elementary. Now it's Shirley Elementary, named after two prominent black doctors who helped develop medical institutions all across the state. Caitlin, there's a school district in Virginia who changed the names of some Confederate named schools. But right now there's a renewed push to reinstate those old names. Caitlin, it's an important story. Nadia Romero, thank you. Up next, another water emergency. A second filtration plant has failed in the United States in just two weeks because of a major flooding event. Plus, women who take on some of the riskiest assignments to bring us the headlines. The latest once-in-a-thousand-years flooding event has forced yet another water treatment plant to shut down. This time in Somerville, Georgia, the area got about a foot of rain within 12 hours yesterday, causing dangerous flash flooding as people in Somerville are now supposed to boil all water before using it. Our coverage continues right now in the Situation Room. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.